Hello, uh, thank you everyone for coming, especially for um, putting up with our half an hour delay, and uh, already a bit late, but I'm sure some of you can uh, sympathise with um, Dave's um, unique travelling experience with the Riva Trains Wales. Um, so, thank you for coming as well. Uh, Dave Clementi is a Research Associate in International Security at Chatham House. Um, his expertise um, obviously includes cyber security, but also British and American defence policies and transatlantic security issues. Uh, he's published uh, a lot of uh, stuff on cyber for Chatham Mouse and news magazines and has a forthcoming chapter in an edited volume, I believe. Mm -hmm. um, and uh, he's also appeared regularly on broadcast media as well as, as a specialist on cyber security. Um, and um, I'd like you all to give him a very warm, avaricious welcome Thanks. to come and give our annual lecture. Um, thanks to all of you as well for hanging around um, just a little bit longer in this lovely weather uh, for me to arrive. Um, thanks, first of all, to the Security Research Group for bringing me here today, and to, to the University, to Glenn in particular, for facilitating all this. Um, I'd like to make some remarks, and I'd like to leave as much time as possible for Q&A, because I think that's well, probably what's more interest, both to me and, and to you. Um, neither of us want to hear me drone on for too long, so I won't do that. One of the things, as Burton said, that I work with um, primarily is cybersecurity, and it's a topic that means everything and nothing at the same time. And that's really, it's a term that we're in many ways stuck with, <clears throat> which is rather unfortunate because it covers a whole host of things. Um, I won't get into all of them, but I'll get into uh, some of the more difficult ones. Um, perhaps, first of all, I'll just give a little bit of background on myself and then we'll, we'll dig in. Um, I've, I've come to cybersecurity through some of a, a bit of an implausible route, um, mostly political science and security studies. I'm not a technologist and at Chatham House we do primarily policy research. So it's, you know, we sit quite close to the Westminster Village and um, as part of that, our research is quite focused on policy outputs. So what are the challenges that policymakers or decision makers in the private sector are dealing with on a regular basis? Um, what are some of the areas that are most difficult for them to tackle? And this is becoming much uh, more of a topical issue. Uh, not just in the, the tiny and very insular uh, Westminster environment, but in research institutes and universities throughout the UK and indeed through um, mostly um, most connected countries. Um, so we're talking about Western Europe, we're talking about North America, we're talking about um, increasingly Asia. Um, and we're certainly talking about Aberystwyth as well. Um, we've got uh, a couple of new security lectures um, here that deal specifically with um, cyberspace, digital technologies, and that's encouraging to see. So I'm very happy to be uh, to be here today. Um, I'm going to do this in three parts. First of all, I'm going to lay out a bit of the landscape as it is today, uh, a bit of how we got here. Then that's part one. Part two is, is a couple of the, the most difficult bits uh, about cybersecurity. Um, and then part three, why should you care? Uh, because we can be uh, outraged over something uh, every day. Um, we can be uh, you know, spurred to action, um, spurred to advocacy, 
Um, we should be we can be prompted to care about a whole host of things, but in what, at what level is this worth caring about? I think it's a fair question. Um, you can't escape bigger and bigger headlines all the time. I would encourage you to ignore most of those when it talks about nefarious hackers doing speculatively very scary things. Um, so it's, it's worth touching on that. This is something that policymakers actually deal with all the time. How to balance the, the pressure to do something on one hand uh, versus their perhaps uh, lack of knowledge on the other. Indeed, lack of knowledge, not just for them, but for most of their advisors on so many of these issues. Um, it's difficult to understand. It's difficult to bridge the gap between the policy world and the technology space uh, to actually give policymakers informed guidance on how to approach some pretty momentous issues. A year from now, the government will go, has an initiative to go digital by default with all of their government digital services. So you're talking about things, you know, the, the super tanker that is the NHS, putting those sorts of services online increasingly. And by April 2014, new services will be digital by default. So we're talking about some big, big decisions that have implications for all of us. I won't get ahead of myself too much here. Um, let's back up just a step and first look at digital immersion, part one. And the level of connectivity that we're experiencing has expanded dramatically. And in some ways, this has crept up on policymakers. Uh, in reality, if you step back, it's often been a smooth progression. The, the informal um, concept, I suppose, that is known as Moore's Law, tells us that computing power will roughly double uh, in power every 18 months. And it's not a law, but it might as well be. It's held true for about 35 years now, and it, it's unlikely to change, probably at least in the next decade. So things are getting faster. Uh, it's becoming easier to connect them. In 20 years, so since the, since the beginning of the public internet as we know it, we've connected 2.3 billion people. It's a third of the world's population. We can, if we go back, I mean, we can go back much further and look at networking beyond that. And that certainly existed, and some in the room are probably a bit familiar with that. Um, time sharing on mainframe computers in a corporate environment or in an academic environment. Email before there was the internet as we know it. But for most of us, we go back to 92, 93, maybe 94, as the beginning of the public internet as we know it. And at about that, at that time, roughly, say, 94, 20 years back, about 20, it was about two and a half to three percent of the UK population was online at that point in time. Um, since then, it's up to about 74 percent, roughly. We'll probably never go above 95 percent. Very few technologies, whether it's telephones, mobile phones, televisions, transistor radios, you don't usually get above a 90, 90 to 95 percent penetration rate. So we're well on the path, but there's huge sections of the world where connectivity is far less. And in the next 20 years, we've already connected one third of the world's population, and in the next 20 years, most of the connected people, and that's what we're talking about here, connected people will be in Asia, will be in Africa, um, both regions of which have less than 25% penetration right now. 
China already has 535 users of the internet, which provokes some really interesting questions when we talk about what the real internet is. Who gets to define that? If it's by sheer weight of numbers, well, that's really not going in, in the, the direction that perhaps、uh, Western liberal democracies would want. And this raises some pertinent questions over who governs the space, over how the space is governed, and who makes those decisions. How are those decisions made? We can perhaps get into some of that in the Q and A. But for now, laying the landscape,、uh, most of the connectivity will come from Asia, will come from Africa.、Um, by 2015, there will be twice as many connected devices as users. By 2020, there will be probably 50 billion things connected to the internet: people, IP-connected devices.、Um, Even Dutch cows. There's a herd of、uh, Dutch cows,、uh, which have uh, wireless uh, health sensors attached to them, and they can wander、uh, over the hills. And these sensors will feed back、um, little bits of information to their owner, letting them know how the cows are doing. And each cow generates about 250 megabits of data per year, so probably a third to a quarter of what your mobile phone sucks up on a monthly basis.、Um, these are the sorts of things that we're talking about connecting to the internet. Um, if, you, if, you buy, if you go out to a showroom and buy a, you know, a mid-range new car today, it will probably have some sort of satellite uplink、uh, that allows it to talk back to its maker, let it know how efficient the engine is running after 50,000 miles,、uh, how the brakes are wearing,、uh, when you might need to bring it in for service. All these sorts of things are what we're connecting to essentially the same network, the public internet, and a lot of them are accessible、um, and. All too poorly protected, which creates some interesting security questions. And as William Gibson said, a science fiction writer, the future is here. It's not evenly; it's just not evenly distributed. And in many ways, that future is disruption:、uh, disruption to established industries, disruption to governments that have、uh, become accustomed to doing things a certain way, and which are now finding themselves. Uh, being put under pressure by their citizens for one thing or another.、Um, why is this? In part because、uh, technology, in almost all aspects, but particularly in the consumer space, in what you and I go out and buy on the high street, it's becoming smaller, cheaper. It's probably becoming faster, but it's becoming good enough to use. It's not perfect. There are numerous flaws, but there's a reason that most of us use Skype. Um, it's not flawless. It often goes down. It gives us problems, but it's good enough to do the job, and it's cheap enough. So there's that price point. It doesn't have to be perfect, nor should it.、And、so all of this is kind of laying the landscape for the security problems that we'll dig into here. And the most of this comes out of the consumer space.、Uh, there's, there's a real imbalance of incentives. That create problems for governments when they want to try and make this space more secure. So, what we'll look at next is some of the hardest bits that we face in this space. When we try and make decisions, when we try and do it at a macro level, we start to pull the problem apart and realize that there's so many competing interests that it's incredibly difficult to make progress across the whole space. And instead, you have to slice it up very narrowly. You make space here, a little bit of space to make progress on the. Protection of personal data, or reduction of payment card fraud, or 
improving government services in perhaps the National Health Service, which is not, it's a, not a small slice, admittedly, um, but one that policymakers have to grapple with. So when we talk about security problems, what are we actually talking about? Um, in many ways, there's been over the past probably six to seven years, a significant increase in sophisticated and patient criminal activity to the level that they're actually, these organizations are able to fund their research and development out of their revenue stream. What that means is they're so profitable, they're easily able to, to, to continue to do research and development and improve their malicious tools uh, out of their revenue. It's not a problem. If I'm an aspiring young hacker with a low level of skill, uh, I can easily go out with 1,500 pounds, perhaps less, and buy a pretty sophisticated toolkit, uh, which will help me to defraud all of you uh, bit by bit. And if I have trouble using that, because I'm not a very sophisticated uh, user of technology, then these organizations will provide 24-7 customer service for me. Uh, these criminal organizations uh, will provide that to their users who are experiencing trouble uh, defrauding all of you. So it's becoming increasingly sophisticated, and, and why not? It's a growth area. You would expect them to move into this space, and this is causing problems when, actually, I'm not really interested in defrauding you because perhaps the UK banking system is, uh, it causes me more problems, and I'll turn my attentions to Ukraine. Maybe I'll go to Latvia or perhaps Spain um, and focus my attentions there, so that when they're defrauded, when I give them trouble. Um, it's incredibly difficult to actually get the law enforcement to cooperate. First of all, to understand that there is a problem. First of all, to, for UK law enforcement to say, we think somebody from here has been attacking you. To actually have that conversation is incredibly difficult. And this is, this is a, real, a real problem. There was, a, there was a, an operation about a year and a half ago where UK police, the Met, collaborated with a number of law enforcement agencies uh, with, um, across Eastern Europe to crack down on one such um, banking fraud organization. And actually, it's quite interesting. One of the things they said, one of the things the Met said was that out of this, they were able to do the forensic work. That took time. Uh, they were actually able to figure out uh, who to go for uh, in Eastern Europe and several, you know, several countries in Western Europe as well. But actually their problem was a very classic law enforcement problem. They had to get a judge in each jurisdiction to issue a warrant so that the knock on the door could all take place at the same time. So in some ways our techn technical problems are, are, are growing. Um, law enforcement agencies uh, are staffed. They're equipped for different problems. But in some ways these are very classic. Some very classic and traditional problems remain, uh, which won't go away. Which they're just on top of those layered a whole host of technical issues, uh, forensics in particular, that take time and are incredibly expensive, um, which isn't actually a very great moment uh, to, be, to be spending money on those sorts of things, or actually making the argument to be spending money on those sorts of things now. We're about to have another round of, of cuts here in the next uh, spending arrangement, and the Treasury will be uh, salami slicing even more. So the Met and others are trying to prove their worth and making the case for uh, how much harm uh, they've managed to uh, prevent 
it's a pretty tricky measure, harm prevention, by any stretch of the imagination. So uh, it's a pretty fraught discussion. And it's a growth industry for the bad guys. We've seen a lot of compound attacks and derivative attacks. So what do I mean by this? Uh, attacks that attack you to get to you. Uh, you hold cryptographic keys to certify a host of websites. I'd like to, to take one of those and, and uh, defraud you uh, as an imposter. And so compound attacks like that are becoming increasingly common, a sort of keys to the kingdom attack uh, that opens the door, attack one he over here to open the door over there. Quite a lot of that. And then it's impossible to have this discussion of cybersecurity without actually talking about states, state-sponsored espionage. And this is, uh, you can't hardly go three, four days without seeing this pop up in the news, particularly in the US, for better or worse. And essentially, this is a, this is a very t difficult discussion between NATO countries, particularly the US and the UK, and Russia and China. Um, almost, not just um, political differences, but almost ideological differences. So uh, I would probably boil it down at its basic element to uh, a, a disagreement over what is uh, considered acceptable in the area of, of state espionage, where NATO countries would generally tend to say that we can conduct espionage, we all do it against uh, other countries, and sometimes we, we do it against each other, but we don't do it uh, in uh, furtherance of commercial objectives. So the state doesn't spy to help our defense companies, or our telecom companies, or our energy companies. So the state doesn't spy on behalf of the private sector. And we've always done it that way. It's a, more or less a, you know, agreed upon. Um, China's come along and, and doesn't necessarily agree with that um, and has well, done some fairly vigorous state-sponsored or uh, state-sanctioned hacking uh, against companies around the world. And that's caused a real difference. Uh, or, as you can imagine, uh, that's about as broad a discussion as one can have. And the inducements to change behavior are slow in coming, uh, and not just because China holds $1.3 trillion in US debt, but because the interdependency between major economies is, is to such an extent that uh, it's very difficult to separate uh, what is actually where the public and private sector begin and end. So if I asked all of you to, you know, to hold your phones up in the air or, or to look on the back of them, everyone that has an iPhone would see that it's on the back of everyone. It says, designed in California, made in China. Um, so what part of that is foreign and domestically produced? Where do you draw the line? We're talking about, we're talking about protecting global supply chains. Um, we're talking about protecting something that, that seems to be no beginning and no end where every major tech company in the world has multiple factories in China. Um, so actually having, going to the government and having this discussion, going to Beijing, um, it's, uh, it's actually difficult to exert much leverage at all. So when you see this pop up in the news again and again, this is a prime source of the pain uh, that's, that's taking place and the, the unhappiness that's driving this discussion. At a, at a kind of a, a macro level, 
when we're looking at what is so difficult about cybersecurity, in some ways we're looking at incompetent systems. We're looking at complex adaptive systems with a multitude of uh, autonomous or semi-autonomous actors that behave in their own way, and together they're more than the sum of their parts. Uh, together they create things that none of them individually could create. And indeed, some of the, together they create some things that you might not expect them to create. And you don't need to belabor social media a whole deal, great deal, but the, the, the prominence of social media in a whole host of areas um, it would probably uh, have been difficult to predict seven or eight years ago. And probably most of you have already forgotten about MySpace, but there was a certain level of disruption that occurred there. Um, it's coming in, the old actor being disrupted by the new, the new actor uh, growing and expanding its plans over time uh, to be far more than just a place where you could share updates and poke each other and like things. Uh, but actually positioning itself as, uh, uh, as a platform for Zuckerberg's awful phrase, frictionless sharing of everything, of all your data, of your whole timeline, of your life from birth till, till the last time you put something. So we're talking about a whole host of things coming together to form an incredibly complex system, a system that in many cases, because it's predominantly owned and operated by the private sector, doesn't look past the next three months. It might look past the next financial year, but not really, generally not. This financial quarter, this financial year, is about as far as the system can look in most cases. And so it does. It optimizes in those loops, in those cycles, in those time frames. Governments do this in an electoral cycle. So three, four, five years, it's a longer cycle. And finding the points where those cycles actually overlap and where they touch each other, those, that's where, actually, where progress can be made. But it takes a pretty astute policymaker uh, to go knocking on the private sector's door and actually propose this in a knowledgeable way, proposing uh, very targeted points of cooperation where things could actually get done, where you could go and have a conversation with uh, with Microsoft, perhaps. Microsoft's a bad example because they have a lot of experience doing this, but perhaps a smaller tech company um, where you could go and, and knock on their door and uh, say to them, you're probably the next big thing, Flickr, Tumblr, etc. We'd very much like you to write slightly better code because once everyone starts using your platform, once you get the next two, three, four hundred million users, um, you're, you're going to be a, a security liability that will probably, at some point, uh, be put on our desk. The insecure code you're generating. And think of this in, in so many, across not just the big names, uh, but across the, the big social media names, but across all the small tech players as well. Think of all the applications you have on your smartphone and how you have almost no way of knowing what they're actually doing. Are they hoovering out your contacts? Uh, and if so, what are they doing with that? How can you actually know what that device is doing? Um, there's a lot of incentives for me as an app writer uh, not to disclose that or to disclose it in a, a, a terms and conditions that's 64 pages long as with the, uh, when you download the newest version of iTunes and you click yes to the user agreement because none of us has ever read it 
but the last one I clicked on was 64 pages long. No one except for lawyers and geeks, really, really bad geeks, has time to dig through that sort of stuff. Because if you did, you, wouldn't, you, you would be very much tempted not to use iTunes. Because you'd realize that you're basically signing over everything, all of your information, all of your usage patterns, all of your habits, they can, you're giving them license to analyze that at a fairly fine level and do with it and sell it to whomever they want. Problem is though, you've said yes to that the last 10 times for iTunes, so you're pretty well bought into their system. So you're not gonna click no, you're gonna click yes and grit your teeth and, and try not to think about all that because it gives you something you want. This is what creates security problems. So there's a divergence, that's what we're talking about. A divergence of uh, interests, primarily between the public and private sector. Um, again, this is a space that's almost entirely owned and operated by the private sector. This puts governments in a slightly awkward position. They're actually not the dominant actors in this game, in most of the areas we're talking about. Espionage, intelligence gathering, that's a different story. Yes, they're dominant there. But they're being challenged in some respects. But in all, all of the commercial space, government's really a small player. And it used to be that in some areas, government had the dominant buying power. So even if it wasn't the main actor, just by buying power alone, it could shift the market. It could go and say, look, we're going to buy X of this, and therefore we'd like you to put these extra enhancements on it, extra security measures, whatnot. Well, th those days are over. Um, the US government can't get Apple to move their foot on anything, primarily related to security. If they, you know, because it's just not worth it. What's the US government? You know, they bought every single employee an iPhone. I'm talking about shifting a few million units. Apple will do that three times over in China this week. So the buying power is insignificant. And so there's a sort of a, an uncomfortable place for governments when they come to have a, a conversation with the private sector about increasing security in the space. So we have poorly evolved thinking here. Um, again, we're, most of us are about 20 years into this experience, 20 years into uh, internetworking, connecting people and things together in all kinds of unimagined ways. We're really not well evolved to thinking about security in this space. We've had millennia of thinking about it in the physical space. We've had a very long time to think about it um, and kind of weigh our options. So we could say, right, uh, you know, in the bit of East London that I live in, uh, there's probably a higher crime rate than West London. But having said that, um, it's at a level that's tolerable enough. The crime rate on the street is tolerable enough for me to go about my business um, in more or less uh, you know, without fearing for my life um, and without feeling need to contact the police on too regular a basis. And I'm happy with that. And to have the crime rate or to bring it down to a tenth of a percent would probably require the kind of presence on the street of security that I wouldn't be comfortable with. Those are systems that have evolved over, over centuries. We don't expect, uh, we don't tolerate um, the kind of security, generally speaking, it's in the UK, in Western Europe, certainly in North America, Western liberal democracies as we think of them. A fairly calibrated idea of the, 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 the risk-reward balance here, the trade-off. 
between security on the streets and personal freedom. We don't really have a grasp of that at all in the digital space. So when people go out and cry for you know, all kinds of changes to be made to, to protect us from all sorts of malicious activities, real and imagined, some of that, yeah, some of it's justified, but some of it's born out of a, a lack of understanding over what might be required to actually achieve what they're asking for. A lot of it's advocacy-based. So we're poorly evolved, and generally the way we run our strategy generates new dragons faster than we can slay the old ones. So we're plowing forward, connecting everything to everything else, because it generates fantastic efficiencies. And it's been said that the internet essentially, its basic purpose is to reduce transaction costs. Everything else is advertising. Bringing efficiency to, out of everything by connecting everything to everything else. We'll get on to this a little bit in the why we should care part. So, divergence of public private sector interests, um, particularly with critical infrastructure um, and information. Information is, is becoming increasingly a, a, its own pillar of infrastructure. When we think about infrastructure, the UK separates it into nine categories. Food, water, transport, communications, emergency services, government considers themselves critical. Um, and a few others. They come up with nine. Most countries slice it roughly the same way, come up with a few extra ones. The US has a defense industrial base as part of their critical infrastructure, as you might imagine. Um, they also have national icons and monuments, probably more from a morale uh, perspective. If that were to be disrupted, um, probably upset people. Maybe we, you know, not all are created equally. And, but again, as I mentioned before, the private sector owns and operates almost all of, of this. Even in government, um, the level to which uh, internal services are being contracted out. When it goes wrong, um, it can tend to go wrong in bigger and bigger ways, in ways we might not imagine. So some of you might have been uh, experienced slight disruption last year when the RBS NatWest uh, snafu happened, uh, when they uh, tried to run an end-of-the-day batch processing for their entire system, as they do every night, um, every night um, GMT, um, so something went wrong, uh, and uh, it's just the files were corrupted, and most of their customers uh, in Western Europe couldn't access their accounts for between two and three days, and this caused no small amount of chaos. If you are a, a budding homeowner trying to close on your mortgage, or somebody trying, you know, stuck in Mallorca trying to get home, um, these sorts of things come from a highly optimized system. And there were suggestions that they may have outsourced a few too many jobs outside the UK, and in doing so, lost some of the institutional memory, the institutional knowledge that had kept these systems up and running for so long. And many of these systems run on fairly vintage programming language if any of you have ever written in COBOL. So we're optimizing these are bits of critical infrastructure. And information is becoming its own bit of infrastructure. A lot of the data that we're talking about, because it's really, you know, it's, it's ones and zeros here, when we're talking about connecting um, civil nuclear power plants to the internet, which is something that should never be done, but is altogether uh, happening too often, and often in unrealized ways. Um, this data often is, is more valuable than the networks that it transits over. So there's a, a question 
four companies. Um, to actually think about what percentage of data, this is, I actually ask this quite often, um, what percentage of data does your company hold that actually generates its strategic value? What do I mean by that? I mean BP has its world headquarters on the other side of our square in St. James's. And you know, the information they hold that's critical to their company that generates its strategic values probably in the small single digits. It's probably less than 1% if you talk about their global network. Actually, getting the chief information officer, the chief information security officer, to boil that down, to figure out what it is they really need to protect, because this is about prioritization at the end of the day, uh, is a really difficult discussion. And it crosses jurisdictions. It goes around the globe, wherever BP goes. What kind of information might, might that be? Probably, probably strategic plans, um, probably samples uh, taken from exploration off the coast of West Africa, probably negotiations based on samples on exploration they've done around the globe. Those sorts of things, pretty small percentage. Um, but it's the kind of stuff that you wouldn't want to go walk in. And it's the kind of stuff that's increasingly hard to hang on to or to keep, just to keep track of. So Microsoft's developers develop, their, develop enhancements to their source code uh, around the clock. It's an ongoing process. It's always occurring. And they, they'll trade code uh, from one developer to the next as the sun rises and sets. Um, and they'll often do it on the go, out of the office. It's a huge challenge for them. Um, it's not the whole source code, but oftentimes it's, that's not, you know, you don't need to lose the whole, all of it to actually cause trouble. Um, so this sort of access and identity management, knowing who has access to what, is, is, is a huge, huge question for any, any even, even mid-sized company. Beyond a couple hundred employees, knowing who has access to what, and actually calibrating that. The companies that are really good at this can do this can revoke your global credentials within 15 minutes of firing you. Um, but that's, that's pretty hard to do. That takes an investment. So the disgruntled employee walks out the door, yes, with their box of, of stuff, but also with a USB stick that's worth a hell of a lot more. And actually getting a grip on that uh, is really, really hard. So I mentioned old programming languages earlier. So, you know, okay, malicious disgruntled employees are one thing, Working on you know, keeping our stuff running around the clock uh, on really old infrastructure is another. There are North Sea oil platforms, bits of which still run on Windows XP. That's a scary thought. Okay, you'd expect those to be fairly isolated systems, but Microsoft is about to phase out support for XP next year for a very good reason. It's absolutely riddled with holes and has had you know, the better part of a decade for every industrious hacker to poke holes in it. It's not the sort of thing you'd want to be running an oil platform on. Things like civil nuclear power plants. I think the last time, I think it was, probably correct me if I'm wrong, 93, 94 um, was when Sizewell B went critical. And that's the last one the UK's turned on. There's other ones though that are still running and have been running since the mid 70s. Um, those are, you talk about legacy systems. You're talking about a system that a has to have near 100% uptime, so you can't turn it off 
to update the operating system. So what you do is you layer sensors on, you update bits of it over time, and what you end up with is a, a hodgepodge of, of you know, re the really old, the really new, and everything in between. And then your security officer has to figure out how to make sense of that. Uh, first of all, to actually make it talk to each other and communicate. Um, second of all, to make sure nobody who isn't supposed to can talk to it and communicate with it. So these are questions which are going to keep us uh, occupied for a very, very, very long time. Um, at the same time as we're connecting new users, new devices, the other two-thirds of the world's population. Um, and it's not just a security issue. I don't want to securitize all of this. Now, there's some fantastic gains to be made by connecting all these people to the internet. Um, we've created our own enough security problems for ourselves. But a lot of the solutions will be found uh, as well. A lot of the ingenuity, the innovation um, in the next billion, the next two or three billion people that we connect. Either way, it's going to happen. Um, but it's, it's not, I don't want to securitize this too much to make it seem too much of a gloom and doom scenario. I guess the last point I would make on uh, why, why is this so hard, um, again, goes back to this fundamental difference of incentives. So one of, the, one of the big talking points, probably over the last two to three years, as, um, as some of the old cybersecurity methods, uh, as uh, public-private partnerships, this much overused uh, phrase, uh, has seemed to be perennially difficult uh, since in the US since the Clinton administration, the talk has turned to, um, does, this, does the current situation actually represent market failure? This is, if there's any economists in the room, we'll understand how, uh, how this discussion over market failure can be interpreted in so many different ways. Essentially, what we're talking about is, is uh, the thesis of some politicians that the, the technology sector has not done enough to actually produce a minimum threshold of security. Um, uh, minimum, yes, is of, cor of course open to interpretation, but policymakers will come and say, you, Microsoft, haven't done enough to create secure coding because of that, because we're all running on Microsoft, because this is a, you know, a monoculture, essentially, now competing with Apple. Because it's a couple monocultures competing with each other, uh, we need to have a close discussion with the tech industry and convince them to spend more money on security. Or we need to convince, uh, you know, we need to get the next 10, 20 big tech startups in a room and convince them to spend a little bit more on security, writing better code, um, perhaps uh, benchmarking their hardware and software a little bit more before they send it out and let us users uh, have our way with it. Of course, for the private sector, there's no in very little incentive to do this. In fact, if I'm a small startup, um, there's probably very little incentive at all. In fact, the incentive is to push things to market as quickly as possible. And, and I'll let all of you beta test it for me. And you can tell me what problems it's causing with all your other applications. Um, and if, uh, you know, it's, it's probably bound to cause some disruption, but the security incentive is very small um, at the same time as, as we're all using these things, at the same time as we're all downloading loads of apps, um, that the developers really, there was never security in mind, generally, when those were put together. And so at what point then does the government step in and say, in this slice of the sector, 
uh, or in this bit of telecoms, uh, we're going to regulate or we're going to legislate or we're going to cajole you or convince you or incentivize you in some way to spend a bit more on, on this bit of security that's going to make ostensibly all of our lives a little bit easier. Whether it's writing better code, whether it's securing their supply chain, whether it's locking down their systems a little bit better, um, guarding who goes in and out, perhaps if they have significant contracts with the government, this is something that would be written into the service and licensing agreement. But when it's not a contractual relationship, it's really just either strong-arming or sweetening them. So it's really the carrot and stick. And when the industry comes and sits down on the table as the dominant player, the government's not used to this sort of, this sort of discussion. Um, they're, they're more used to the carrot and stick having a little bit more effect. So the discussion over whether this constitutes market failure or not, well, it really, the answer very much depends on where you sit. What level of intervention should the public sector have in private sector? Actually, you come up with a very different answer um, here um, or in the EU, as you would opposed to the US, and certainly different than China, where the distinction between the state and society or the public sector and the private sector is slightly more opaque. Um, I wouldn't say that it, it's always been that way. I wouldn't say that it's always been the way that it is here in the UK as well. Um, but in an absence of tangible solutions, and there is no silver bullet here, um, many governments are struggling to actually figure out what levers to pull. trick is actually having policymakers that can pull the right levers and set, help to set some of the right inputs from the very beginning. Now, we could quickly lapse into nudge theory here, but there, there's something to be said for actually setting the right inputs and figuring out where, we'll probably get to this later, but where in the system is, uh, can, where, how, what level of autonomy should you give the user and how much should you constrain them? Um, what, how much autonomy can the system tolerate? And you're talking about different systems here, not, not the internet writ large. And, and the solutions that the private sector often comes up with, again, operate in a very different time cycle than the public sector. It's tough to find those points of intersection. And normally those points of intersection happen when something really goes wrong. Um, and then all sides can agree, this is a bad thing, we must change. Uh, something must be done, we are doing something, something has been done, the security syllogism. Um, action can sometimes suffice uh, for long-term results. So, if I, if I, I probably focus quite a bit on the difference of incentives, but that's because I really wanted to hammer that in and to emphasize what level of difficulty that causes when we have this discussion about cybersecurity. I'm going to back up one step very briefly and say that as I did at the very beginning, this covers a, a multitude of things, this label of cybersecurity. Um, a network administrator would say that it's network security. Um, a programmer would, may say that it's database security. Essentially what it's boiling down to is information security. It's the, one, it's the security of the ones and zeros and of the systems that actually transport those ones and zeros. And at its basic, its most basic level, it's essentially a, a series of trade-offs between confidentiality, integrity, and availability, the information security triangle. We can move, we can, you can select what, what, you know, maybe the two that you want, but you're going to have to sacrifice the third. Do you want confidentiality? 
Do you want integrity? You're going to have to sacrifice some freedom. You're going to have to lock that system down. It's going to be less available. Do you want your data to be available? It's probably not going to be very confidential. There's an obvious trade-off here. If WikiLeaks has shown us anything, um, is that wide, widespread availability militates against security. So there's always, there, there will always be a trade-off there. So last, why should we care? Why should we care indeed? So the point hasn't been to scare you, but to elaborate on some of the, some of the problems. Um, the point here isn't to scare either, but I think it's to put it in perspective. Um, not all of it is a security problem, but there are some real tricky issues here. We're more dependent than we realize. We're losing the redundancy in our systems. So I mentioned the NatWest RBS failure last year. You lose redundancy in the system uh, the more you optimize it. Over the last probably four or five years, you know, the frequency, you know, you've probably seen some, some banks disappear off the high street. Uh, the, bank may still be, the bank may still be around, but they're just closing their high street branches. They're encouraging their customers to go online, and they're probably phasing out checks as well. I don't know when the last time was I wrote a check. Um, but it's a form of redundancy, one that we can all identify with. If I can't bank online, I have to make a payment. That's my way to do it. Maybe, if I can find my checkbook. This is, the, this is where we're progressing to in, in so many areas um, at, a, at, a, at a personal level, at an individual level. This greater efficiency usually implies greater dependence. But who owns the risks when everything is connected to everything else? This is this first point on dependency. And we've got all kinds of examples, but I'll pick two. In, uh, almost exactly two years ago, in April of 2011, not for the first time, uh, Armenia lost all of their internet access um, because uh, a Georgian woman on the other side of the border went scavenging for copper and um, with a spade cut the only fiber optic line uh, that uh, supplies Armenia's internet. Okay, they had a little bit of satellite connectivity, but, uh, but that's just uh, <laughs> incredibly limited. Essentially, 99% of Armenia's internet access was cut off. Because one woman in a spade uh, stabbed at a cable, hoping there was some copper inside, and she was disappointed. But Armenia was disappointed as well. Um, and I asked my colleague about it when this happened. Apparently, it wasn't the first time it happened, which actually is somewhat of an indictment. How many times does that have to happen before you, say, lay a second cable? And I'm not sure things have improved in the past two years, but that's the sort of thing we're talking about when we're talking about redundancy. That's the sort of thing where you'd want a little bit of redundancy, and you probably want to spend taxpayer money to get there. GPS. This is a great one. GPS does three things. Does position, does navigation, and does timing. Most of us know it for the first two. Where am I now? How do I get from here to there? That's, that's kind of where it begins and ends. But GPS does a, th a third thing, and that's timing. It times, it provides very precise, very, very precise timing at an atomic clock level and at, at a global level. This is particularly useful for the, the financial industry, which relies on GPS uh, for nearly time, very precisely, nearly 100% of its financial transactions. So that means if I'm transferring, if I'm exchanging uh, you know, pounds, 10 million pounds, into yen, that's going to get me a different rate of return now or one second from now. And I'd very much 
like to have that stamped very precisely. I'd like to know exactly when that transaction is taking place. And, and this happens, I mean, we're talking about trillions in liquidity that's being timed at an atomic level, and GPS is doing this for us. Most of us don't realize this. The Met Police operates two small units that uh, keep a very close eye, A, on the central London area, and B, on everything coming in over the channel. Because if I'm a white van man who really wishes to drive a few hundred miles extra, more than I'm supposed to, um, chances are my van's probably being tracked by GPS now. It's probably got something on the top, something inside, that shows my employer uh, where his fleet is at any given moment in time. But if I want to take a break, um, or if I want to drive a few hundred extra miles, I can buy a very, very cheap GPS jammer online, um, which may be moderately powerful, but it could be quite powerful indeed. Um, and I flip the switch, and my employer can no longer see where I am. Um, of course, if I drive that to the center of London, that's going to cause havoc, because that's going to block signals for a number of the banks, um, and you know, general havoc will ensue. So Met actually has a couple of units keeping an eye out for these sort of things. This is the kind of dependency I'm talking about that we don't actually realize. Um, we, we know pretty well the position and the navigation aspects, but not the timing. The timing actually does a lot more for us than we realize. Yes, the last point would be on security as a means to an end, um, as a necessary component um, of achieving economic, social, and political aspirations. Um, we have a fairly poor understanding of the implications of our dependence at the moment. We're just getting started. We're, getting a, we're trying to get a better understanding of it. Um, but there's far more disruption to come, much, much more, um, primarily in the commercial space and the effects that this will have on government, on the way government operates, on the, way, the level to which the government feels it should be accountable, and the level to which the government can deliver its services more efficiently. And, I mean, it's often been said that if you haven't paid for what you're using, chances are you're the product. Yeah. We can talk about this with Google, we can talk about this with Facebook. Probably most of the major platforms you use, you do so for free. And I, mean, I don't know when the last time I was like, paid for uh, my email. It's been quite a long time. Probably because we are the product, and indeed we are. So it leaves us feeling a bit impotent or a bit stranded when, say, Facebook changes its privacy settings for the 300th time, exposing things that I didn't want to be exposed. Or perhaps Google gets rid of Google Reader for any of you feeling the pain of losing Google Reader next month. Um, because at scale, uh, if, if the reader, if, if, if a Google product isn't being used by 100, 150 million people, it's just not worth keeping. So uh, you know, we'll integrate it into the rest of our systems and all you reader users go find something else. Well, it's a market opportunity for someone out there. I'm searching for that replacement for Google Reader. You are the product though in this system understand that when you get upset over these changes. And there's far more disruption to come. Some of it will come in the privacy aspect. That's a growth market in itself, um, holding these organizations accountable for how they use uh, the data that they hoovered up when you click yes to their 64-page user licensing agreement. And hard to think about this soberly, though. I guess this is, this is my closing point. It's very difficult to think about this soberly because it's really easy to be A, scared, or B, outraged, or C, titillated,
by all these things that are going on in this space. You know, will Google Glasses make you cross-eyed? I don't know, but I don't need to read any more articles posing this question. Um, questions to which the answer is no. Yes, that one. Um, will hackers from Insert Your Bad Guy Here crash the UK's power grid? No. Uh, very unlikely. No single point of failure. Um, but there are endless, uh, endless gallons of internet ink to be spilled discussing these sort of worst-case catastrophic scenarios. So it's very difficult to think about this soberly. And I guess my last point would be one of the great things about this space is the ability to innovate without permission. If I'm a young aspiring programmer, I can go write a program. I can go write an app. Maybe I'll get it, Apple to put it on the on the uh, on iTunes, and maybe I'll make a few few pounds out of it. The ability to do this in so many areas, because it's just code, it's just ones and zeros. The ability to do this is actually what gives me some hope. Um, but it's what, at the same time, it's what scares governments and established industries. This permissionless innovation. I can go and do pretty much whatever I want to do. Coding, as John Norton at Cambridge said, is about the closest thing to magic that we've created. It's pure thought stuff. If I can think of it, and I can write it, I can do it. And I can integrate it with everything else out there, and I can make it do something interesting or fantastic, or quite trivial. But I can, I can perhaps make a few pounds out of it. It's the closest thing to magic that we've yet developed. And that makes a lot of governments nervous. What worries me is less the, the thought of you know, some inspiring young hacker attempting to bring down bits of the critical infrastructure. It worries me more to think about governments and corporations seeking greater levels of access into my life, correlating all the various strands, putting together my legal records, together with my health records, together with my educational records, cross-referencing those. Think of all those as sheets of paper or panes of glass stacked up one in front of the next. All the different aspects of your life and drawing a little line all between those, drawing a thread between those to develop some sort of correlation about you, whether it's to sell you something, I mean, the days of you know, imagining the minority report advertising scenario is, is far-fetched, those days are long gone. You know, soon it will be the case that when I walk past a, a billboard, my smartphone will talk to it, and it will uh, read my information, perhaps what I've chosen to make freely available, and the billboard will try and sell me what it knows I've been talking for that kind of precise, targeted information. Now, we give up that kind of data freely because usually it gets something good for us in return. It points us towards a book or points us towards something else that we didn't even know we wanted. But now we, now we very much do want it. Um, we're willing to make that trade-off in the commercial space. In the governmental space, oftentimes we aren't aware of the trade-offs we're making. And I think that's where there's a, quite a difficult discussion uh, that will be had probably over the next decade as we wrap our heads around privacy, what, pri what privacy actually means in a whole host of different areas. I, I probably couldn't say it any better, but the author Cory Doctorow put it quite well. I'll close with this. He said, regardless of whether you think these are real problems or hysterical fears, they are nonetheless 
the political currency of lobbies and interest groups far more influential than Hollywood and big content. Every one of them arrive at the same place, asking, can't you just make us a general purpose computer that runs all the programs except the ones that scare and anger us? Can't you just make us an internet that transmits any message over any protocol between any two points unless it upsets us? And I'm, I'm quite happy to say no, um, because the ingenuity, the permissionless innovation that have got us this far, I think will continue. Um, we're going to see far more of that, and I'm actually fairly optimistic, despite these security issues, despite the problems we're dealing with now. Uh, all of us are users of this space, and for very good reason, because it's given us something useful, perhaps many, many useful things. Um, so for that, in that respect, I'm fairly optimistic. Uh, not complacent, and not, not unaware, uh, but on the long term, optimistic. Thanks very much.